You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Podcast, and I have Franklin M. Harold. Uh, he's the author of uh, The Way of the Cell, Molecules, Organisms, and the Order of Life. And Franklin is, was originally a biochemist by training. He has a PhD in uh, biochemistry, um, and he's transitioned slowly throughout his career uh, in looking at various mechanisms in bacteria and in cells. And we're going to talk about his, uh, his work and his uh, his interest. So, Franklin, thank you for coming. My pleasure. Yeah. So, tell me, what, what originally got you interested in studying biology, and how have uh, things changed over time, in your view? Well, a lot of things have changed over time, most of all me, uh, since I'm now 90 years old. But first, I have to explain that I was born in Germany. Uh, okay. We got out of Germany early. I grew up in the Middle East and eventually came to the United States in 1947. So I first became interested in science very early as a child uh, and suddenly acquired a passion for chemistry at about age 15, uh, living at that time in a pioneer farming village in what is today Israel. At that time, it was Palestine, part of the British Empire. And uh, basically, I taught myself inorganic chemistry with the aid of a private laboratory, my own private laboratory, which I constructed in a disused outhouse on the back of our property. Uh, it's wow. quite amazing how much you can teach yourself if you're interested. Eventually, yeah. in, in the United States, I became a chem uh, studied chemistry in New York City and later biochemistry in California, Berkeley. Uh, and gradually became, over the years, more and more of a cellular physiologist and eventually uh, an evolutionary biologist. And that's my current interest. So what in, okay, in the world of evolutionary biology, um, what, what do you see changing recently? Do, is, it, is the central dogma and neo-Darwinism still the main thought process for people, or is it changing and moving to a more sophisticated view? It is certainly changing. Where you stand on this um, varies from one scientist to another. Certainly, the central dogma, in my opinion, stands as it, as it has for 50 years now. Uh, but our understand, but neo-Darwinism, which basically uh, which basically puts the focus of evolution on changes in genes. That certainly needs tweaking. Uh, it, needs, it needs a lot of modification because uh, while it is true that 
changes in genes are part of the story of evolution and an, an, an essential part of the story of evolution. They are not all of it. So I, I stand with those who believe that the modern synthesis needs to be expanded, broadened. It, had, it has had to make accommodation for a lot of mechanisms that no one thought of when these ideas were first formulated 60, 70 years ago. But in my view, fundamentally, Darwin stands on his pedestal. So long as we believe that evolution is a story about heredity, variation, and natural selection and adaptation, Darwin, Darwin's place is secure. So what are some of the modifications that you think um, are needed to expand on the modern synthesis? Well, the, the most important one, this is happening. Um, there's, there's a good deal of argument going on, but fundamentally this is happening and has been happening steadily, especially for the last uh, 20 years or so. Most important, in the view of the people who formulated the modern synthesis, remember we're talking about the 1940s, 50s, uh, they, they knew about genes, so they really knew very little about what they were and how they worked. And they put all the emphasis on mutations in genes, in what we would nowadays call coding genes, genes that uh, prescribe the structure of particular proteins. That is certainly still true, but it's not all the truth. And the most important changes have been to allow for completely different mechanisms of or changes in organisms. For example, uh, the living organisms can be very broadly divided into two grades of organization. One is what we call the prokaryotes, what people, most people think of as bacteria. Actually, there are two kinds of them, but we won't have to go into that. They are small, comparatively speaking, simple. Nothing in life is simple, but comparatively. And they are the original living forms, and they have remained fundamentally small, relatively simple, uh, and, and uh, little changed for the past three billion years. The evolutionary running has been made by eukaryotic cells, cells like those that compose every organism you have ever seen, including ourselves. And the origin of eukaryotic cells is very, very controversial, much under debate, but it certainly is not a simple matter of the accumulation of gene changes in protein coding genes. That is part of it. But the fundamental part, apparently, is the uh, getting together of existing bacterial cells to make a completely new structure. So at least two um, major elements of the eukaryotic cells are actually bacteria that have taken up residence many, 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 uh, a long time ago, somewhere around, uh, let's say, two billion years ago, um, took, up, <clears throat> took up residence in the interior of an existing cell whose nature is much debated. And out of that emerged the, the eukaryotic cell as we know it today. It's a long complicated story about which we know far less than we would like to. But it is clear that uh, organelles that generate en useful energy, uh, both by respiration and by photosynthesis, are of bacterial ancestry. So 
in one way or another, uh, the origin of the eukaryotic cell is the result of a merger between previously separate cells. That's a completely different uh, approach to evolution uh, to, uh, from that envisaged by, by uh, the people who formulated the modern synthesis. And there are many other examples, uh, epigenetic mm. inheritance. It has all become much more complicated, much more sophisticated, uh, but I really think we understand things very much better. But it is important, in my view, and not everyone agrees with that, that we, keep th we must keep thinking about evolution as a story about heredity, different kinds of heredity, variation, adaptation, and natural selection. You can't, if you get away from that, then you have abandoned uh, our understanding of evolution. And so I disagree to some yeah. degree, for example, with uh, uh, Dennis Nobel, whom I respect immensely. But we don't look at the world through quite the same eyes. Oh, I've, I've spoken to him, and he seems to uh, he seems to agree to a lot of the same concepts. What what would you say are some of the differences in your thoughts? As I understand Dennis Nobel, he is he would basically say neo Darwinism is wrong and needs to be replaced. My understanding would be. Neo-Darwinism is incomplete and needs and needs and is being expanded and revised. Okay, that's that's a real one-liner. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the the examples you mentioned, so in eukaryotic cells, the mitochondria are thought to be bacteria that were engulfed, you know, millions of by years some, ago by somebody, it, engulfed by somebody. Now, if you want to lose friends, you take a stand on who did the engulfing. What, why do you think that that happened and doesn't appear to have happened so very often? Why is it so rare that something like that happened? And what do you think caused it to happen? I am very open-minded on all this. Uh, I'm, I, 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 tr I try to be a scholar and uh, to keep track of what, what is going on, what the evidence is, what people are thinking. Uh, but it seems to me terribly important to keep an open mind, remember that all of our present ideas may be mistaken, perhaps fundamentally mistaken. So my view on, on this is, first of all, why is it so rare? Why did it only happen once? Well, the answer is simply not known. Uh, but I, I tend to favor the ideas that have been uh, proposed by people like William Martin, who was a professor in Dusseldorf, Germany, and uh, my good friend Nick Lane in London at University College, that the fundamental difference between prokaryotic cells and eukaryotic cells, that what, what made it possible for eukaryotic cells to evolve into elephants, whereas bacteria could never get beyond the, the simple, simple stages of aggregation, <clears throat> has to do with bioenergetics, with the availability of energy. And, that, and I tend to agree with them that the only way this could be made to work was by basically enslaving bacteria to, to become powerhouses. This is not my idea. By no means everyone agrees with it. This is a controversial notion, but it still seems to me the most plausible of all the ideas that are being discussed. Now, what gave rise to that association in the very first place is simply unknown. 
and we can argue about it, and we do. Well, right now, we all have billions and trillions of bacteria inside our bodies, but they're not necessarily inside our cells, but they probably speak to them, and they coordinate with them, and they digest for them. So maybe uh, that's an example that shows that this kind of interaction happens, just not to that extent all the time. Yes. Living things, living things never live alone. They are invariably members of a community. And almost invariably, I know of only a single example of, of an ecosystem that is thought to be composed of just one thing, single kind of uh, bacteria. But by and large, uh, we live in, in, in complicated ecosystems made up of a great variety of organisms that interact in, in all kinds of ways, beginning with the simple fact that we eat one another. If you ever, ever thought about it, why is it possible for you to eat a cabbage or, uh, or, or steak and, have the, and, and make use of that energy and make use of those components, even though you're totally different from a cabbage? We are part of a single interacting web. So I would say the, it is true that, that, that there are zillions of bacteria living in us and on us. I don't actually think that they communicate in any direct way with the cells. Uh, there's a huge gap between, let's say, a human being with trillions and trillions and trillions of cells, and, and the whole thing is six feet high uh, and, and weighs, uh, what, 180 pounds or whatever. Uh, whereas a bacterial cell is about of the order of a millionth of a meter in size, there's a vast gap here. They don't talk across that gap, but I don't think. <clears throat> but um, but mm. interactions between cells, sometimes of, of varying degrees of intimacy, very common. So you have certain bacteria that remain discrete. They remain separate cells, but they can only mm. live in association with each other. And so there's a range of symbioses of living together more or less intimately, organisms living in each other's pockets and making each other's lives possible. And there are also the interactions that we call disease when an organism becomes a parasite, always infinite variety. Hmm. Do Do you know of any examples of new species emerging during the the last 150 years when we've been observing? It depends on your definition of species. And, and again, this is one of those arguments that goes on forever. If you, if you mean things like, like some significant biochemical differences, yes, certainly in bacteria. Uh, but I personally would prefer to answer your question by saying no. If you're thinking about organisms that are visibly different, that look different, that have different lifestyles and so on, then no, I am not aware of any new species having emerged and certainly not of any new species having been made under under conditions that we can examine. That again makes me sort of a semi-conservative. Yeah, why do you think now, that? You can ask why, why, why would that be? And right. I... Um, and I think we can really answer that. Organisms, uh, organisms throw off new species, not because there is some fairly minor change in, in one or two or ten genes. It's because 
their environment changes, their responses change. You have to, to, to see the evolution of new organisms. We would have to, uh, we would have to put them into novel environments. It would, we would have to change their environment in a novel way and give the whole thing time, lots and lots of time. Uh, how much time we can, one can argue about. But certainly it's not something that can be done in the laboratory uh, in the, life, in the uh, span of one graduate student's work. And I believe, what um, I don't know whether you're familiar with the work of Richard Linsky, a uh, microbiologist no. in Michigan, who has been doing a, a, a brilliant research, research program on long-term evolution in bacterial cultures and keeping very careful track of everything that's going on. It's been an immensely productive program. But he has not created a new species of E. coli, but then he also has not yet, so far at least, done the kind of experiments that might conceivably achieve that. And nobody's quite sure what that will take. In fact, nobody's sure at all what it will take. But in why, why is it why would it take so long for a new species to emerge? Like, what, what do you think the mechanism is by which a new species would emerge if you were to propose one? Well, there is certainly not one single mechanism. This is, we are talking about long-term changes in, in, in the web of molecular interactions that underlie a, um, that underlie a functioning organism. Part of it it will include changes in particular coding genes. But all the evidence indicates that the major changes that resulted in the origin of new animals, for example, new animal species over the past half billion years, have to do with genes that affect the web of regulation. In other words, it's not so much the structure of the genes that specify the particular proteins, but rather the, the web of regulatory elements that control uh, how much and to what extent a particular gene is expressed. It's a, it's a systems problem. And uh, whereas, whereas when the, um, say, the modern synthesis was formulated, people were thinking of evolution in all of biology in a fairly linear fashion. Genes specify proteins and proteins do the work. So if you need want to, if changes happen, they have to change in those proteins and so on. It is much, much, much more complicated, and it is an elaborate system uh, of of interactions at many levels. Where we are beginning to learn a lot about this, but in the course of it, it has become so complicated that uh, it is not accessible to the unaided imagination. These are these are webs of control that look like in like a telephone exchange, um, and they really perhaps cannot be analyzed by any single mind. They can only be understood by a computer if there is such a thing. If if computers mm. understand anything, life is okay. uh, the, the uh, steady. We, uh, the more we learn about life, the more we see how complicated it is. It becomes ever more complicated. The notion that science simplifies things, it, sometimes it does, but it usually does so by taking an axe to a tree, lopping off all the branches and saying, hey, I have a telephone pole. 
I think that's the only way that we can comprehend things is by reducing them and simplifying them and then right. slowly uh, under, adding underline, back in complexity. Underline that we. It is the only way we can understand things is simplifying them, reducing the complexity. And that is fine. So long as you remember what you are doing. You have taken an axe to the tree. You have lopped off the branches. You've cut off the leaves. You've chopped the roots off. And, of course, the telephone pole, mm. yes, that's part of the structure. So, so, long, okay. so long as you keep in mind that we have, we humans, have our, the limitations of the imagination, that things are much, much, much more complicated than we thought. Uh, and simplification is one half of the scientific endeavor, and the other half has to be to appreciate complexity. Now, don't ask me what complexity is, because that's another can of worms. <laughs> well, instead, I'll ask you a very easy question. Where, how did life begin? What's your thought? <laughs> if, I knew, <laughs> if I knew, I'd publish it right away. <clears throat> um, mm. That is the great mystery. But biology is a very curious science. It is bracketed by two big, great mysteries, great mysteries. One is the origin of life at the very beginning. The other is mind, mental activity, culminating in consciousness at the other end. Those two have remained essentially intractable. So uh, my own, uh, I've, I, I, I've taken a lot of interest in, in the origin of life. I have not contributed to it as a research scientist, but I've thought a lot about it and read about it. And at the moment, my, uh, as, you, as you know, the fashionable idea, the idea that most scientists will subscribe to, albeit tentatively, is the notion that a, 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 on the original, on the, on the primitive Earth, which was lifeless, of course, and had no oxygen, that organic materials, organic compounds, a great variety of them accumulated to generate what is sometimes called the primordial soup, and that in that soup, spontaneously, by sheer dumb luck, a self-replicating molecule of some kind emerged, and that self-replicating molecule, shall we say, acquired ancillary molecules which helped it replicate and now we are off on, on evolution towards bigger and better things first of all cells that is the idea that uh, that that is simple it's compre relatively it's comprehensible um, and most scientists will say yeah well probably something like that may be true personally i do not believe this i never have because it well, leaves what, what out, do you think happens? it leaves out energy. It leaves it. It it sim there simply is no earthly reason to believe that anything like that can happen. To digress for a moment, if it could, the canning, the, the canned food industry would have found it long ago. It would be a major source of food spoilage. How many millions of cans of, of vegetables and meat and so on are produced under anaerobic conditions containing an infinite range of, uh, of uh, organic molecules? How many of them have ever generated a living thing spontaneously? We'd know about it. So in my, in my view, that notion is wrong, fundamentally wrong. Uh, my own inclination is to emphasize the role of 
energy at the beginning because making complicated molecules is work in the physicist sense. It's not something that will happen spontaneously. It, uh, it, you have to put energy in in order to overcome the tendency of complex things to fall apart. So there has to be a source of energy. And that has been one of the great mysteries in the whole origin of life story. We do not know what that was. Uh, we really have no idea. Uh, there, there's, there's been a lot of talk about this, that, and the other thing, especially about the, the uh, submarine vents, which may be true or may not be true. Uh, I'm, I'm sympathetic but skeptical. So, but I think that's, that is the, the great gap. Where the Dickens would the energy have come from? And how did the simplest chemical systems learn to make use of it? So I tend on the whole to go with the thinking of a man named Pross, Adi Pross. You probably will not have heard of him. He is an Israeli chemist, recently retired, who has been thinking about these things for, for years and has gradually evolved into thinking that life should have begun with very simple chemical systems, not necessarily involving a gene or anything as complicated as that, but a system sufficiently complex, sufficiently interactive to be able to reproduce itself, not replicate itself, reproduce itself. Um, I find that an attractive idea. There is essentially zero evidence for it, there are no good model systems. Uh, it's, again, one of those speculations. Everything about the origin of life is speculation. And there's one other thing I'd like to say. You know, the whole notion that life arose spontaneously on the primitive Earth, maybe from geochemical processes, it contradicts perhaps the most solidly established principle in all of biology, which is that living things always come from pre-existing living things. You know, it took a couple of centuries of argument to settle that. It wasn't finally agreed upon until the work of Pasteur about 1900. So, and that's something, that's something solid. There has never been a known case of spontaneous generation, ever, ever. And yet, we who believe that life originated spontaneously have to maintain that Somehow, on the primitive Earth, things were different, and at least once, life did emerge spontaneously. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm open to this. I understand the argument, uh, but uh, I, I insist on my right to remain skeptical and open-minded. Mm. Do you think and life And don't interpret started... that to mean that I'm a crypto-creationist. I'm not. What's a crypto-creationist? I'm merely old enough to have learned that essentially everything scientists say eventually proves to be wrong in the sense at least that it needs to be modified. I think our understanding of the world keeps changing, it keeps improving, it keeps coming asymptotically closer to some kind of a truth, but the truth still eludes us. And the origin of life is the great mystery. Do you think that life started once and all life came from an, an initial start? Or do you think it happened multiple times simultaneously around the Earth, maybe? The latter, I believe, 
if if there is anything to this idea of simple chemical systems that ne- are nevertheless capable to some degree of reproducing themselves, and I, I repeat, there is no evidence for this. This is a speculation, but suppose it were true, then presumably it happened more than once, but perhaps only one survived. There's, we have very good reason to believe that all things living today on earth descend from a single common ancestor, uh, who is commonly known as Luca, the last universal common ancestor. The reason for believing this rather incredible claim is that all living things operate by the same molecular principles. All cells are based on DNA. All cells do whatever they do with the aid of proteins made up of the same 20 amino acids linked together in the same fashion. Uh, the, and and, uh, and the, the clincher is what we call the genetic code, the code that specifies how uh, the sequence of, of nucleotides in DNA is translated into the sequence of amino acids in a protein, like kind of like a Morse code, a symbolic code. It is the same in all living organisms with trivial exceptions. That is very strong evidence that all of us share a common ancestor. Incidentally, Darwin already intuited this. He didn't have the biochemical knowledge we have today, but he he thought that uh, the, the evidence, even in his day, 150 years ago, already indicated that all living things are related. We are all descendant of one or a few uh, primordial forms. So this idea is not new. It's been around for a long time. But it, it is perhaps it's one of the most important uh, conceptual discoveries in biological science. We are all, we are all brothers under the skin. The earthworm and the pine tree, you know, it's actually quite incredible when you think about it, that all of us are at bottom members of a single, almost infinitely diverse family. You probably never really thought through what that means. Don't step on that earthworm, he's somebody's brother. (laughs) That's great. Um, Any concepts or thoughts that you've had over the years that just, amazed you. That's probably one of them, but any other things that you've thought of that just you were amazed? Well, certainly uh, I spent many years as a research scientist in the field of bioenergetics, which is the study of how living things generate useful energy and what they do with it. Uh, And in the course of my own work, dealing with something seemingly unrelated, I came across findings from my own lab which, which contradicted the uh, understanding that was prevalent at that time. That would have been the late 1960s. And the only way I could make sense of them was if a man named Peter Mitchell, an English, rather eccentric English scientist, uh, was correct. Peter Mitchell had devised a theory of uh, how how energy is actually generated and used, which was in, in which was totally different from the ideas prevailing at the time, and the general view at that time we're talking about early 60s, 
the general prevailing view was that A, Mitchell was wrong, and B, he was incomprehensible, and therefore he wasn't worth struggling with, and, and he took some struggling with. Uh, my own data really made sense only if Mitchell was right. Unfortunately, I didn't understand Mitchell any better than anyone else did. So mm. uh, at, at, one, at one point, I systematically stayed home from the lab every morning with a sheaf of Mitchell's papers and my slide rule. Those were the, the happy days when we lived with slide rules. And I made a systematic effort to try and get my head around what this man was saying. And literally, one day the light went on. When people speak <clears throat> of, of enlightenment, I know exactly what they mean. That's just what it felt like. Suddenly, it made sense from, <clears throat> from one moment to the next. So in my opinion, the most important discovery I ever made was Peter Mitchell. And then I spent years doing experimental work to test and and uh, and and uh, uh, to test and uh, reinf uh, reinforce, shall we say, Mitchell's ideas and to explain them to the rest of the scientific community. During that time, I was one of a very small number of people scattered around the world. I remember in 1970, Mitchell had a map of the world in his office with a red pin where, <clears throat> wherever there was somebody who took him seriously. And in the whole North American <laughs> continent, there was one single red pin. That was me in Denver, Colorado. So that's right. the, the highest honor I've ever received. Well, what, what did you so, discover about his thoughts? Well, I discovered that if, you, that if you work at it, it makes sense. And I cannot explain that over the telephone. That's you really need paper and pencil, and it is counterintuitive. But to summarize it again in a, in a sound bite, uh, Mitchell's fundamental notion was that the mechanism by which uh, respiration, which, which oxidizes foodstuffs, the way that is coupled to a chemical process that living organisms can actually use, that this is not primarily chemical, but electrical. And that was a radically new idea. And as I said, it was counterintuitive. It made very little sense to most people. Didn't make any sense to me initially. Uh, but once you, once you grasp what he meant by that, uh, it made sense of a lot of the world. And he, he eventually won a Nobel Prize for this in 78. Uh, so uh, that is the single most... Uh, uh, most profound insight, in my opinion, that I've ever had. I discovered Peter Mitchell and explained him to the rest of the world. I'm quite proud of that. Oh, that's great. That's great. So, th does that mean that organisms exist more in a in an, in an electrical world versus a chemical world, or is it just respiration no. is the process that's more electrical? Respiration is a process that generates something like an electrical current. In a normal, the, the electrical currents that we are all familiar with uh, is a flow of electrons through a, a wire. Living things don't operate with electrons. Uh, more correctly, they do, but at least the current that I'm talking about, uh, which travels on the cellular scale, uh, is a current of protons, positively charged hydrogen ions. So it's not so much 
electricity, but as Mitchell used to say, purchasity. Um, and, that, and that makes some things simpler and other things very much more complicated. But that has become a standard part of, the, uh, uh, of our understanding of how living things work. When, when I first got into it, this was a, this was a new and, and radical idea. By now, it's, uh, uh, every textbook will, will feature that. That's just part of the way we work and the way respiratory chains are linked. If respiratory chains um, harvest the energy, they have to be connected with, uh, with, with uh, devices that make use of the energy. And one way in which this is done, not the only way, is through this current of protons. Again, things are becoming ever more complicated. True. Yeah. Are there any very recent thoughts or discoveries that you've made or read about that are interesting to you? Let's see. There are certainly, I mean, I keep learning. I, I keep, I've just discovered, for example, that um, octopi, octopuses, uh, well, invertebrates have not only brains, but relatively sophisticated minds, which are built on a, on a structure totally different from those of our own brains and the brains of animals. So, and they seem to have something like consciousness. Uh, that was new to me. I had never heard that before. So, hmm. I, I mean, I continued to enlarge my own understanding of what life is. And in fact, that's what I'm doing now. I mean, I'm now 90 years old almost. <clears throat> and I'm trying to summarize what I have thought about and learned over the past, especially the past uh, 30 years or so since I retired, about living things. So I hope to produce one more book tentatively to okay. be called On Life, Nature's Most Wondrous Creation, in which I try to pull all this together in a way that is comprehensible and brief lacking in all the detail that has made biology almost incomprehensible to anyone who is not a specialist. And that's what mm. I'm working on now. Which means, oh, how are you close to finishing it, or where are you at in the book? Well, I'm just, I've just finished chapter 10 out of a likely 11 or 12, so I'm, I'm making real progress. Excellent. That's great. With, with, a little, with a little bit of luck, I live to finish it. <laughs> I hope so too that, that's great well Franklin thank you for coming and I appreciate all your wisdom and your insights it, you speak very clearly about all these concepts which is rare uh, when speaking to scientists so thank you thank you very much well, bye then you're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs future technologies such as artificial intelligence stem cells 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Thank you.